Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, God's Masterpiece, a study of women in the Bible. If you've missed any part of this series, you can find it and many others online at SheridanHouse.org. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. Well, this morning we continue the journey of um, looking at women who have been incredible role models for us, walking in integrity, walking in godliness um, as they are going through difficult times. And we're going to do the same today. We're going to look at a woman um, walking in integrity and to kind of understand what our perspective should be and why. And as we do that, if you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel 25, as we look at this amazing woman, and um, we're going to see what her perspective was as she went through her challenging times and moments in her life. Last year, we had the privilege of studying Philippians together, and one of the life-challenging verses was, Philippians 1 27 only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel very strong instructions isn't it very strong challenge. And then there's another one uh, very similar to that found in Ephesians 4.1, and I love it in the New Living Translation. It says this, Therefore, live a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called of God. Now, guess what? None of us are, really, are worthy, are we? <laughs> but what we can do is based on all that Jesus did on our behalf in our gratitude as royal daughters of the Most High God, we should walk in a manner that honors and brings joy and delight in the heart of God. Yesterday morning, I was pondering, Roby had preached a sermon on Sunday about um, the truth of the resurrection. And um, he was talking about how one of the thoughts out there was that maybe, you know, maybe an explanation of, of why the tomb was empty was that he swooned, that Jesus swooned. You know, he had a horrible time on the cross, and um, then he, um, you know, swooned and kind of came back together and rolled the stone away by himself and walked out of the tomb. And Roby was talking about how impossible that would be because, first of all, before he even went to the cross, he was um, whipped and... um, what is that thing that they do that's worse than whipping? Scourge, thank you. And um, scourged, and what a scourging does is it rips and shreds the skin off of your body, exposing your organs. And that was before he even went to the cross. And um, I, I was thinking about that. And then I, and I started thinking about the fact that not only was he scourged and then went to the cross for... Uh, and hung there on the cross on our behalf that he was there for six hours and we I got I called him and I said I want to talk to you about something why would Jesus hang there for six hours I mean he could have you know the point was to die for our sins he could have you know 
ended it in an hour or two or three or whatever, but six hours. And he said, well, that's a very good question. I want to think about that for a little bit. But I do wonder, you know, numerology, numbers are so important in scripture. I wonder if it had to do with he um, created the world, the universe, in six days. And so perhaps, did he hang on the cross because he was creating our um, road to heaven? that he was creating our salvation. So maybe that's why he uses six hours. So we were chatting about that. And after we hung up, I was just pondering that. And I thought, you know what, Lord, if you did nothing but save us and open the door of heaven for us, that would be inexplicably, there's no word to describe how grateful we should be for that. But look what you do. You've given us a future, and then as we are going through these crazy times in our world and in our lives and in our circumstances, you're there for us. You listen to us. You, you um, hear our prayers. And, and, I said, I, and I just was thinking about, Lord, you know, if you just said, great, I'm, I'm going to purchase your salvation, I'll see you in heaven, that would be so much more than we could ever, 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 ever be grateful for. And so as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about this lesson, and that is what this is all about, that in our gratitude for what he has done, not to impress him, he's not going to be impressed, guess what, but um, in our gratitude that not only did he purchase our salvation, but that he participates in our life day by day by day. In that gratitude, we need to walk with integrity. And we're going to be looking at a, a, a woman um, that did exactly that. I don't know if you all saw this on, um, on um, Facebook, but there's a really fun story. I'm going to try to read it in this, this small print here. But anyway, um, there's a story about two runners that were running in a, a marathon or something. Maybe it was even the... Um, Olympics or something. I don't know. But anyway, one was Ken from Kenya. His name was Abel Milkaya or something like that. And um, he was only, it says that he was only a few meters from the finish line, but got confused with the signs and stopped thinking he had finished the race. Right behind him was a Spanish man, Ivan Fernandez, and saw him and realized what was going on and started shouting to the Kenyan to keep running. But, the, but um, Moltea did not know Spanish. He had no clue what the Spanish-speaking man was saying to him. And so he, he was very confused and, and still stopped um, in his tracks there. And realizing what was going on, Fernandez pushed him to victory. A reporter said to him, I cannot believe that you pushed that man to victory. I mean, you could have won. And he said, um, uh, my dream is that one day we can have some sort of community life where we push ourselves and others to win. And then they kept asking him and saying, I, I'm just really trying to understand this. And um, he said, the reporter said, but you could have won. And Ivan looked at him and replied, but what would be the uh, merit of my victory? What would be in the, um, the honor of this medal when somebody else really had won the race? And then he said this, what would my mother think of that? <laughs>
And it, it was so profound. And then as I began to think about that, I thought, what would my father think about that? What would my Abba think about that? And that's what we need to be thinking about as we are making our decisions, as we go through our challenging times, as we go through our circumstances. And we're going to see that in our story today about Abigail, an example of a woman who walked in integrity, a woman who walked in integrity. A on your outline, who was she? Who was she? Well, she was a woman who conducted her day-to-day living with integrity that was worthy of her calling, as that verse says, as a follower, or a follower of Yahweh, her God. What I love about this woman is that her character and her walk emerges out of an extremely difficult circumstance. Know anybody in an extremely difficult circumstance? Yeah, don't we all? And um, what an encouragement it is for our heart, just as we saw in the lives of Esther and Ruth and the Shumanite woman, um, that we are clearly not the first generation of women who have gone through difficulty, are we? In fact, you know what? I would embrace my difficulty any day compared to the things that we have been studying about these women. And so as I say that, let us keep in our minds the situation that pops into your brain that is the most difficult circumstance in your life. All of us have them. So as, as we study this woman, I want for you to have that in your brain so that what we're going to study about her will affect how you respond in your circumstance. Wow. What a gift from God that he's provided these glimpses of biblical women and how they handled the challenges in such godly ways to be role models for us. Now, we all have, hopefully, human role models, but how amazing that we can just open Scripture and find women who had situations that um, our lives pale next to and have been and handled them in such a way that can be, they can be role models for us. Many of us, like Abigail, can do nothing to change our circumstances, but here it is. We can choose how we respond to them. Let me say that again. Just like Abigail and the other women that we've been studying, we, many of us cannot change our circumstances, but what we can choose is how we respond to them. Wow. What a challenge. So be on your outline. What was her situation? What was her situation? First of all, a little historical background um, before we meet her. This was a historic period in the life of Israel when Samuel had anointed David to replace Saul as king, as God instructed. That was God's instruction. He said, I want David to be king. He had already been anointed, and, um, but Saul was not happy about the situation, and so what he was doing was chasing David all over the countryside. And David had not, although he was anointed as king, the next king in line, he was, had not ascended the throne yet. Everybody in Israel knew that this was King David, even though he had not ascended the throne and officially been crowned king. Now, in the first verse of 1 Samuel 25, it says this. Now, after that, after Samuel had obediently anointed King David, it says, now Samuel died, and all of Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his house in Ramah. Then, 
David rose and went down into the wilderness of Paran. Now, we, we learn that David had now gone into the wilderness because, again, he was running away from Saul, who was after him. And um, so while he was hiding in the wilderness, David and his men took on the job of protecting the sheep of a prosperous businessman. Now, this is apparently a very common practice to, you know, offer, you know, you, you come into a, a, a property and you see all kinds of sheep and goats and so forth, and you say, hey, you know, I know that there are a lot of um, bandits around out there in the wilderness and in the, the desert, so what we'll do is we'll protect your property. And what we, will, what we want in payment is for you to feed us and take care of our needs. And so that was what David was doing to this particular person. The recipient was to uh, provide food as payment. It was a completely understood and common practice at that time. So in verse 2 and 3, we meet the couple that David is protecting. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep. I want to go there, don't you? Little sweet lammies. Anyway, uh, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. That's a lot of ownership, isn't it? Now, the man's name was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved, and he was, oh, by the way, a Calebite. Now, number two her marriage. We are first introduced to his wife. Uh, a, on your outline, who, what was she like? What was she like? Verse 3 tells us that she was discerning. Other versions say she was, it means intelligent, that she was an intelligent woman and very beautiful. There are other things that we will observe about her um, by what we learn about her husband. What was her husband like? B, we learned that he was a wealthy husband, but he was harsh some versions say surly and badly behaved. Now, it's very interesting that surly in Hebrew means cruel, hard, obstinate, stubborn, wicked, and evil. He sounds like a great guy, doesn't he? Wow. Um, in fact, in verse 17, one of his servants says he is such a worthless man that nobody can talk to him. Interesting. Wow. Um, suddenly, my circumstances are paling. How about you? Anyway, and um, interestingly, we, we learned that his name later on, we're going to learn that his name actually means foolish or wicked. Now, isn't that a great name to pick for your son? Hey, foolish and wicked, dinner's ready, come on in. Isn't that amazing? Anyway, uh, the sad thing is that we learn that he was descended from Caleb. He was a Calebite, the verse said. And, and you remember Caleb. He was such a strong man in Joshua's days as they were entering the promised land. So he comes from such a great godly heritage. And here he was this surly, wicked man. So sad that he, this fool, as his name says, did not follow in the courageous and godly footsteps of his ancestors, which once again helps us to be thinking about what kind of legacy am I leaving? What kind of legacy am I leaving for my children, for my 
my grandchildren, for my nieces and nephews, for all the beloved children that are in my life, uh, adopted ones that we, you know, feel like they're our own, whatever. But what kind of legacy are we leaving? That's so important for us to be thinking about. It's sad um, also that this intelligent, beautiful woman did not get what, from a human perspective, what we think she deserved. She was stuck with an evil man. It's a picture of an extremely difficult marriage, one that was no doubt arranged for her because at that time, that was a custom where their, their uh, marriages were arranged. She likely had to contend with, at the very least, insensitivity and moodiness and um, or verbal or even physical abuse at the most. We don't know all that she was dealing with, but what we do know is that her husband was an evil man, according to the uh, servants. Certainly not a Hallmark movie, is it? But the thing that we need to notice as we move through her story is that her difficult circumstances did not affect her integrity or attitude one bit. Let me say that again. As we move through her story, we see that her difficult circumstances did not affect her integrity or attitude one bit. She could have easily given into self-pity, insecurity, anger, resentment, but she did not. Now, I know she's human, and so I'm sure she had her moments where she'd say, oh my goodness, this is just hard. But here's what we see about her. She moves beyond those very human feelings of I can't believe I have to deal with this, and does not allow it to affect her behavior, does not allow her for it to affect her attitude toward life. Wow, why am I stuck with this person type feelings? Hence, she becomes God's masterpiece to be used in his divine plan. What a lesson for us that being around difficult people is not an excuse for not being what God wants us to be. What a contrast between this married couple. So see on your outline what happened. Let's take a look at verses 4 through 8. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David, remember, crowned king. king David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall meet him. Peace be with you. Uh, thus you shall greet him, peace be with you, and peace be in your home, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds uh, have been with us, and we did, not, did them no harm, and they missed nothing at the time they were in Carmel. Ask your monk, young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and your son David. So according to what he was doing, number one, David sends his sons. David, hearing that Nabal's men were shearing the sheep, he sends his men to collect what was due him. And again, remember that um, this was a typical practice that everybody understood and was used to. Uh, the verse again, please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Wow. Remember that in verse 8, it was not an un unfair request to ask for payment for protection. It was a common Practice. He was only asking for food for his men after uh, protecting them. 
Number two, how does Nabal respond? Very interesting. Look at 10 and 11. And Nabal answered David's servant, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Again, talking about David. Shall I take my bread and water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to these men who come from I don't know where? Disrespectful? Wow. David did not deserve the treatment that Nabal gave him, and to call him a runaway servant was a tremendous insult. He knew exactly who David was. Everybody in Israel at that time knew exactly who David was, the anointed king just waiting for the moment when God had him ascend the throne. And so for him to say this servants and all that was just unbelievable, unbelievable. David could have asked for more, but only asked for provisions. Also, David was not some pagan. He was a fellow Israelite, and even, are you ready for this, a member of the same tribe as Nabal. They were both the tribe of Judah. And so here was this fellow Israelite, this fellow um, same, man, uh, same tribe man, uh, going to be king shortly, and he is this insulting to him. Amazing. It was a response of total disrespectful, self-centered insult, and here it is, a foolish one. <laughs> because not only you know, it, it was it a matter of time, when David would ascend the throne, but for him to put himself in, um, in a position like that, that the king could punish him, really, uh, later on down the road. Disrespect and insulting to a future king. Unbelievable. Number three, how does David respond? Look at verse 12 and 13. So David's young men turned away, came back, and told him all of this. And David said to his men, every man, strap on your sword. And every man them, um, of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. That's how many men that David had around him at that time. David was about to respond in a very harsh and angry way. Understandable, as he was so disrespected, but still wrong. Over and over again, God has said, vengeance is mine. Let me take care of this. Yes, you have been mistreated. Yes, you've been disrespected. Yes, this was the wrong response from this man that you've been protecting all this time. But vengeance is mine as the Lord. So for him to angrily strap on his sword was uh, not the right thing for him to do. But God in his great love for his child, he intervenes in a very dramatic way before David makes a wrong move. Number four, God intervenes. God intervenes. Don't you wonder how many times God has intervened in your life? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, hallelujah is right. I'll never forget um, a couple years ago, I was pulling out of my parking space at uh, Winn-Dixie parking lot. And as I'm backing out, I've, I all of a sudden realized that closer and closer to my back fender was another car coming toward me. We were both backing out at the same time, and boom. And I thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. We, we backed out in, right into each other. And as I'm 
looking at that and thinking about it and trying to get out of, and getting out of my door, he jumps out of the car and he said, you are such an idiot. What are you thinking? You drove right into the back of me. And in my mind, I'm going, and wait a minute, you just drove right into the back of me, thank you very much. And I was starting to come, you know, back at, at him in my mind, and all of a sudden I felt like, have you ever had one of those? And, um, and it was the Lord saying, defuse the situation. Honor me with your response. I can't remember all the things he said, but clearly the Lord was saying, calm down. So I walked over to him and I said, I'm so sorry this happened. I didn't say, I'm sorry I did this because guess what? He did it too. So um, I said, I'm very sorry this has happened and um, let's check our car, see if there's any damage. And um, he said, well, I'm calling the police. And I said, go for it. And I'm going to call my husband. And um, so the police came and, um, and there was absolutely no damage to either one of the cars. And um, again, I said, hey, I just want to again say I'm so sorry that this happened and, you know, hope it doesn't ruin your day and so forth and so on. And um, Bob pulls into the parking area and um, just as the man is coming over and opening the door for me and saying, have a wonderful day. And Bob walks up and goes, I thought I left work immediately to get here to help you with this difficult man. And I realized how God had diffused the moment. Had I done myself, not good. But because the Lord said, stop, 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 it, it diffused the moment and the anger was put aside. End of story, nothing happened to either of the cars, so that's a good thing. But anyway, I wonder how many times God has done that in our lives where you know he has kept us from doing something or saying something, or responding in a way that would affect our future. Wow. What messenger has he sent into your life to stop you from a terrible offense? That's exactly what he did in David's life. He sent a messenger to stop him from causing bloodshed that he would probably greatly regret later on. The messenger was in the form of a intelligent and beautiful woman, a discerning and beautiful woman. And as we observe her dealing with this potentially devastating situation, we will see her character traits emerge. What a role model for a masterpiece of God. Let's take a look at her response and observe her character traits. D, what were Abigail's character qualities? <coughs> character qualities. Look at verse 14 through 17 and see her, as her workers are informing her what happened with David when he um, had sent his men to say, hey, uh, we've been protecting you. Can we have our, you know, our food and so forth? <clears throat> Verse 14, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. In other words, they protected us. They were a wall to us both night and by day, and the, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he, because he is such a worthless man and no one can even speak to him. Wow. 
Okay, number one, first quality that we see in Abigail. Number one, she was approachable. She was approachable. Notice that the workers knew who they could approach. They knew who they could come to in times of crisis. They did not go to the owner, who they knew would be uh, not the one to do the right thing. Verse, the beginning of verse 17, they knew how foolishly he had handled the situation. The question we have to ask ourselves is, am I the type of person that can be trusted to be approachable in crisis situations? Well, you can, you, I know you can go to so-and-so. I know you can go to so-and-so because that person, that woman has integrity and she has common sense and she'll help us figure this thing out. Are we approachable like uh, Abigail was in the workplace, in your churches, in your home, and your extended family? Are you a person that is approachable, particularly in crisis situations? Number two, secondly, she was teachable. She listens and takes actions. action. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five sias of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. That sounds like quite a feast, doesn't it? I want to be there. Um, that is a lot of work, a lot of work. She listens and hears what they have said and wisely moves into immediate action. Let me collect the food. Let me bring me the donkeys. Let me put the food on the donkey. Help me load up the donkeys. I got to get there. And she immediately goes into action. So many problems would be avoided in our life if we were willing to listen to the people around us that give us counsel. I love that she wastes no time wringing her hands. Well, are you sure that that's what he said? Wait, let me go tell my, I, I want to go talk to my prayer group and have them pray for me before I do this because this sounds scary. I mean, here, this guy is about to be king and he is, he's strapped on his sword. And wow, really, should we go? I mean, what? Ooh, and I think sometimes our indecision and our wringing of our hands cause things to escalate and become more problematic not her. She's not paralyzed with fear. She decisively moves into actions. Action. Number three, she was diligent. Diligent. Abigail immediately discerns the gravity of disrespecting the king to be, to be, so she diligently puts her plan in place. She possessed common sense. I love where verse 18 says, she made haste. Um, or in other, word, other versions, it says she lost no time. She diligently set to work, immediate action, of putting all of that together and, and making a plan and going quickly to find David. She wisely did not wait for David to come to them in his anger and instead intercepts him, verse 20 tells us. Number four, she is honest. She is honest. Noticed? Notice that David, um, uh, his, his intentions in his anger, verse 21 and 22. Now David said, surely in vain have I guarded all these fellows, uh, this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good? God, do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him can hear his anger, can't you? Mm -hmm. And understandably, again, not right, 
but understandably. Notice her smart tactics as she comes upon him and addresses him. Look at verse 23 through 25. When Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from her donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak into your ear and hear the words of your servant, talking about herself. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Notice that she takes the blame on herself. She says, hey, oh my goodness sake. I didn't know that you sent your men. I didn't see them arrive on our property. It's my bad. I didn't see. I wasn't paying attention. So please, you know, diffuse your anger. It's my, my fault. Don't harm my men. I didn't see them coming. She honestly faces reality as it was by admitting that her husband had acted foolishly. Now, she doesn't embellish. She doesn't go on and on. She, she doesn't um, say, you know, um, I... Can I quickly tell you what he did last week? <laughs> you think he's bad now? Really? And she doesn't embellish. She just says, this is the facts. He was very stupid in what he did. He was foolish in how he responded to you after you have taken care of him and, by the way, about to become the king of Israel. <laughs> anyway, um, she's honest about his character when necessary. Worthless and folly are in him, she says. But we never hear her say anything negative, interestingly, to her servants. What a moron. We're about to die because of what he did. We don't hear her say, there's no need for her to say that to her, uh, to her, her servants and to the, the, peop- the men that worked with, with the animals and so forth. She just assesses and diligently goes into action. In, in her frank honesty, she becomes a peacemaker with her hat in her hand. I am so sorry I missed your men coming. You know, my husband, woo, he made a very stupid decision, but really it was my bad I didn't notice, as she's saying. She's diffusing the situation. She becomes a peacemaker. She um, diffuses his justifiable outrage without manipulating excuses. Number five, she is humble. The fact that her workmen knew that she was not only intelligent but approachable was because she it just shows that she was very, very humble. She wasn't an arrogant employee, but one that they could approach and tell her, oh my goodness, you won't believe this, uh, Mrs. Abigail, but wow, you know, David and his men are furious, and um, they, they're realistic with her. They can talk to her because she is humble. Notice her approach to David in verse 23. Again, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She approaches angry David with the deference due to the future king. She treats him as if she's already walking into a throne room and he is already king. She gets off her donkey, bows to him in respect, and disarms him with her humility. It must have taken him completely by surprise because her husband was so much the opposite, arrogant, and she was humble. Number six, so importantly, most importantly of all, she was a woman of faith. 
This is the secret of her success. It's the key to her integrity. She was a woman of faith who accepted God's sovereignty in her life. And we can see that by what she says. Look at verse 26 through 28. Now then, my Lord, she's speaking to David, as the Lord, first of all, my Lord, notice that's a small L she's talking about to David. In other words, she's saying, uh, so then my king, basically is what she's saying, as the Lord, capital L, lives, Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to the Lord, talking about Saul, um, be as Nabal. And now let this, this present, and let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord, small l, be given to the young men who follow my Lord, or my king is what she's saying. Please forgive the trespasses of your servant, talking about herself, for Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house because of the Lord, the Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh, and evil shall not be found in you as long as as you live. Do you notice the strength of what she's saying to him? She is saying, uh, she's talking about Yahweh. She's talking about her Lord. That's a personal name of God. She's not talking about God Almighty, the creator of the universe. She's saying, my God, my Lord, Yahweh, which is the personal name of Israel. She does not focus on her offending husband. She's honest about it. Um, but instead she focuses on the Lord and received her worth in life and purpose from him. Because of her faith, she has an understanding of the Lord's way, ways. Notice again in verse 26, because the Lord Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. In other words, she's taking the positive. She's saying, of course, <laughs> you're not going to choose to unsheath that sword. You're not going to cause bloodshed. In fact, you're going to save with your own hand these men who, you know, are angry and, and ready to, to go after these people. She's saying, um, you're going to save the lives of, of the people, not only here, but in Israel, is basically, she's sort of foreshadowing. She states it as if she knows he will do the right thing. And in verse 28, she once again takes responsibility. Please forgive your servant. In other words, me. Two times, at the very beginning, at the very end, she said, hey, really, this is my fault. I did not notice. I did not see your men arriving. And she's acknowledging God's sovereignty is keeping him from bloodshed, and she's affirming that God has an active role in all of their lives. For her to say, you know, Yahweh is keeping you from doing this, is saying God isn't some distant God up there in the heavenly places. He knows what we're dealing with. He knows what we're struggling with. He knows and is, a part, is participatory in our, our lives, is what she's saying. Perhaps because she has lived in such a difficult situation, she has truly grown to lean on the Lord for protection and provision. Through her difficulty, perhaps, has um, engaged her deeply in her relationship with her sovereign Lord. Yahweh, to live in faith, waiting on him, to work in his way and his timing. Wow, that is so key to us today in our I want it now generation. I want this situation resolved today. 
Lord, I, I mean, I have been praying about this for a week, Lord. Come on. Are you listening to me? Are you hearing me? And we tend to be so wanting immediate response other than, rather than allowing God to work and hone and shape and, and, and deal in a sovereign, wonderful, loving, gracious way in our, in our circumstances. Not Abigail. She watched and waited and prayed. Wow. Number seven, she uses gracious and wise speech. Look at verses 29 through 31. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in a bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall be slung out of the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord, Yahweh, has done all to my, Lord's, to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord, remember my servant. Remember your servant. Remember me. In other words, what an amazingly beautiful speech. Let's pick it apart a little bit. She, um, the, the interesting thing to me is she didn't have much time to plan the speech. She didn't have, you know, her get on the computer. I need to write this down. Get it in my notebook and have it, you know, memorize it a little bit a couple times here. She immediately loaded up the food, got on the donkey, and went. Now, I don't, we don't know the distance, and maybe she had some time to think about it, but for me to come up with a speech like that, it would probably take me 10 times in the shower to work through what I'm going to say. Amazing how verbal she was and how beautifully she spoke uh, because she was a servant of Yahweh's. Wow. Notice that she uh, makes reference to Saul's persecution enemies, refers to them as enemies, not the king, not King Saul who's after you. She says, your enemies who are after you. She assures him that he is in the care of God in verse 29. She uses a beautiful, beautiful image, a verbiage, bound in the bundle of the living. It's a beautiful Hebrew saying, which means protected in, that something is protected as precious, uh, referring to the binding, to binding something up precious. It's kind of like when you go uh, traveling and you have a suitcase and if you have something that's maybe you bought something uh, fragile or something or, or you have some jewelry or something that's very, very special to you, what do you do? You put it, you wrap all the sweaters around it, the jackets and everything and you put it in the middle of your suitcase. That's kind of the image. She's saying you are bound in the bundle of Yahweh. Isn't that beautiful? Amazing. Wow. Notice also that for his encouragement, she mentions the future. Verse 30, when the Lord, Yahweh, has appointed you over Israel. She's saying, I, let us not forget, David, that you've already been crowned king and you're going to be ascending the, th the throne uh, very shortly. And she's taking a, a focus away from his miserable existence of the moment where he's having to run and to earn his living, uh, you know, taking care of flocks and, and the people that take care of the flocks and so forth. She also tells him not to do anything today that would cause him grief and pangs of conscience tomorrow when he becomes the ruler. When you ascend that throne in God's perfect timing, David, don't have this on your conscience. 
You want to, you, you want to, to ascend that throne with a clear conscience that you did not do something out of a, a rash, angry moment. In other words, she encouragingly points out that he has a responsibility to his reputation as a man of God. He belongs to God. He was fighting the battle of the Lord. And then she ends up in verse 31b, and when the Lord has dealt well with you, don't forget me. In other words, remember, I'm one of your, uh, your servants out here. I'm one of your, um, the people that live in your kingdom. Don't forget about us. Don't forget about um, you know, all these sheep and, and goats and all this kind of thing. Remember that I'm going to be one of your subjects. Don't forget about me. In other words, um, she's, again, putting herself in a humble position and emphasizing his high position. When you are king, don't forget your subjects, in other words, is what she is saying. Do you hear the gracious wisdom of her words? She, she uses her femininity and her brains. God uses wise, feminine messengers in the world. He sent a wise, feminine messenger to the future King David for making a rash, bad, angry decision. God loves femininity. He created it, didn't he? He, um, we are made in his image, and so we reflect as women the sensitive, nurturing, gentle, loving, bright, creative side of who God is. May we never feel like we have to, you know, be like a man or approach it like a, a man would do it. We need to do it in the way that God has, has ordered us, ordained us, uh, given us our temperament, given us our perspective. We need to be honest with who we are. What an amazing woman Abigail was. No wonder God uses her in his divine design. She was truly his masterpiece. And perhaps it was her very difficult situation that honed and shaped her into being the very woman that she had become. Now, interestingly, how does David respond? Number one, his anger is diffused. Look at his answer in verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Wow. Notice that he realizes that it was truly God who sent her, that it was his plan, God's plan, Yahweh's plan to send her. What an incredible compliment. And isn't that what we want? We want people to hear God when we advise. We want people to say, wow, you know, I, I thank you for that prayer. I think that was straight from the Lord's heart. That, that really spoke to me. And we want to be the instruments. We need to be the instruments of God in each other's life. Number two, he sought her counsel. Wow. Uh, look at verse 33. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. In other words, thank you. You gave me really good counsel here. You kept me from doing something very, very foolish that I would regret someday as I ascend the throne of Israel. And so he compliments her. When we walk in integrity, people can see God through us. Boy, how we need that for such a time as this in our own world, don't we? Uh, um, are we pointing to God? Are we being hope dispensers? Are we, we saying, yes, this is very difficult. Yes, it's a very volatile time. Yes, there's a lot of anger. Yes, there's a lot of division. But God, 
And we need to be continually pointing God and being hope dispensers. The end of the story, I love it. A, she uses wise timing. Look at verse 36. When Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. Pretty wise, right? Telling her husband all that had transpired while he was in a drunken stupor would have been very, very unwise. Another great lesson for us to think through our timing of our confrontations. You know, I have this, this issue that I really need to speak to uh, with my boss, but, you know, I just need to really uh, have your timing, Lord. Would you open that door for me to have this conversation? Um, would you um, give me the words to say? Being very careful, thinking through. Okay, I know um, my husband just walked in from work and he's very, very tired after a long day. This is probably not a time to tell him that he once again forgot to take the garbage out this morning. Uh, whatever, that's just a stupid example. But timing, timing, timing. Thinking about uh, confrontation in a way that we're wise in our timing. B, justice is served. Look at verse 37 and 38. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him. <laughs> and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Wow. In other words, what happened is God preserved David from doing evil and wicked Nabal had a stroke or a heart attack and died. Wow. Amazing. And the end of the story, see, God honors her faithfulness. Look at verses 39 through 41. When David heard that Nabal was dead. He said, wow, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a servant to, the wa to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. She was committed to God. She was committed to her marriage. And then she, the, uh, she made the best of a difficult situation. She used wisdom and discernment. And through all that diffused a volatile situation for her people and her future king, the king of Israel. And God honored her faithfulness by working in and through and for her. Amazing, amazing. In summary, the name Abigail means cause of joy. Cause of joy. What a perfect name for a woman who lived worthy of her calling. Like it says in Ephesians 4.1, she lived worthy of her calling. And so she was the cause of joy. What a role model for us in this divisive, angry, divided time that we live in. It makes me desire to be a woman that causes joy. You? Absolutely. Wow. Thank you, Lord, for this example. Let's for previous lessons or other resources, please visit sharedinhouse.org or call us at 954-583-1552. We hope you can join us again next week.